turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 again. We are marching slowly through this chapter and for good reason. There are some of the most glorious and frankly famous truths in all the Bible in this, in this chapter, especially this last section. Before we read it, I uh, want to share an interesting experience that I had uh, I was asked by a friend one time at a lunch. This was one of those guys who asks very provocative questions that really make you think. I love being with him, he, but he always asks questions that I'd never thought of until he asked them. This was his question. He said, Rick, let's say that you are in a position where you are dying of a slow terminal illness. And you come to the point where hospice comes in and you realize you have hours or days to live. Your best friend or your wife comes to your bedside and asks, what passage would you like me to read to you? He said, what would you want read? Wow. Ever thought about that? It's probably something you, you ought to. What would be a passage that would encourage you when you were on the front porch of heaven? I thought about it for a while. In fact, I didn't answer right away. We had some more lunch. and I, At the end, uh, the only thing I could default to and the thing that I still would default to is the passage before us. The last paragraph of Romans 8. If there is a more encouraging, more assurance-laden passage of Scripture, then I'm not aware of it. We're looking for this time at our actually for the last, last time and this study and the next study, um, at verses 31 to 36, it is so dense and so rich with practical implications and with theology, we cannot go fast. Let me read that for us again. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who or what? will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, will distress, will persecution or famine, will nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. In 1996, my wife and I were living in Detroit. I was a youth pastor at Highland Park Baptist Church with a friend of mine, Lynn Crowley, who was the pastor there. And we spent two and a half of the most precious years in ministry at that church. During that time, I developed a passion for golf like I had never had before. Now, I am a very good golfer in my mind. Doesn't always work out like that on the course. In 1996, Detroit hosted the U.S. Open Golf Tournament at the revered Oakland Hills Golf Course. Now, a little background about Oakland Hills. Oakland Hills is, by all accounts, one of the most difficult golf courses in all of America. In fact, after winning the 1951 U.S. Open there, Ben Hogan famously called his win, quote, a taming of the monster. And from that point on, that course became known as the monster. Incredible greens that are undulated to, to four and five feet. Uh, overwhelming rough that if you drop your ball just in front of your feet, it's hard to find. Very difficult golf course. Well, during our time in Detroit, a gracious member allowed me to play there several times. And I can tell you that designer Donald Ross carved that course into a piece of land without me in mind. Um, he was thinking about professional golfers, not hacks like me. Well, playing in that tournament that year was a friend of mine. He was an acquaintance that became a better friend. Um, I had known him for a few years, and he came there. He was uh, a good golfer, had won several tournaments, but was not in the top 
uh, 50 or so golfers at the time. As you know, a golf tournament is four days. On the first day, he did okay. On the second day, he did a little better. On the third day, he was in the running for the lead. This is the U.S. Open. This is, in, in essence, the world championship of golf. And on the fourth day, coming down the stretch to the 18th, the final hole, he was tied for first place. In fact, he and Tom Lehman came to hole 18 tied, and he parred the hole, and Tom Lehman bogeyed the hole, and all, all, all that means is he won by one stroke. He won the U.S. Open. My friend's name is, was, Steve Jones. Maybe you've heard of him. Well, Steve is such a humble, godly man. He's a great believer. And he, after what he, he, he asked graciously Kim and me if we would join him at the, at the champion's reception. Well, here it goes, Kim and me, walking through this revered, austere, highbrow reception in the clubhouse of Oakland Hills. As we approached the formal hall where the reception was, we were stopped by security. The guy was gracious, but the guy was piercingly uh, stern. Excuse me, uh, no one is allowed in here without invitation. And before I could even say anything, he was a little bit more aggressive and said, sir, you're going to have to leave immediately. And he was looking around for security to escort us out of the building. As God's providence would have it, at that exact moment, here came the champion, Steve Jones, walking down the, high, down the hallway. He saw immediately what was happening. And what he did next had an indelible imprint on my life. He stopped, and he looked at the security guard, with, with security around him being escorted into and, and the tournament uh, players, um, uh, championship people move, moving with him. He stopped, and he said, hey, it's okay. They're with me. And we were escorted in to the champion's reception. I'll never forget that phrase. It's okay. He's with me. When we come to this section of Romans, Jesus says that to every accuser, every problem, and he says it to God the Father. It's okay. They believe in me. They're with me. By the way, we were immediately treated like royalty. The security officer was quite embarrassed and escorted us to the, to the front table that we had to move from, by the way. Um, but it was, it was amazing to see the instant turn. We were, we were with the champion. Imagine being with the Savior. Imagine being with God the Father. Imagine being with the Spirit himself. As we walk into these verses today, we're meeting a different kind of security trying to keep us out of heaven. They're not on our side. They are events and people that would threaten both our understanding of salvation and specifically our assurance. There are demonic forces. There are natural forces. There are human forces that come against us as believers, even unwittingly trying to make us not as sure as God's word would make us if we've given belief in the gospel. But it's possible if you understand this, to have the same assurance that I had moving from anxiety to pretty, pretty feeling, pretty, feeling pretty good that someone can say it's okay, he's with me. Well, as we saw last week, when we come to the final section of Romans 8, we find a series of questions. Remember how many there are? There's seven in all, right? And those seven questions really can be grouped into five because two of the questions group together very nicely. One actually answers uh, the question that the first answer question asked, and the other one actually restates it. So when you put all that together, there are really five interrogatives that we're, we're moving through. Let's become our outline. Let's kind of plow through it. What I'm going to do is review the first two. We're going to look this morning at the second two because we're going to save the last one for its own next week, and I think you'll know why when we get there. Question number one, five questions to answer for a Christian's unquestioned assurance. That's what Paul is concerned with here in this last chapter, in this last paragraph of this chapter. Number one, if God is for us, who is against us? 
It's a good question. If God is for us, who is against us? And this, this first question, this first interrogative, puts the first two questions together. If God is for us, who is against us? Really, it comes after, what then shall we say to these things? We looked at that pretty intensely, that what do we answer when we say, what, do we at, what question is being answered here by the, the interrogative, these things? What does he mean by what shall we say to these things? And there are a whole host of answers to that. Some people think it's all the questions he's raised from chapter one following. Some people think it's all the questions raised from at the end of chapter three forward. Some people think it's just in chapter eight. I think the best way to understand it is what he just said in the wonderful uh, exposition of the order of our salvation in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he justified. These whom he justified, he glorified. What shall we say to these things? With the great glory of God as the author and sovereign of salvation, what's our response? This is Paul saying, what's the practical application to the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation? And his answer is interesting because it's framed in the next question. If God is for us, or since God is for us, the Greek uh, word there can be translated since. What shall we say to these things since God is for us? Those five elements of the golden links of, of salvation that, that chain together and God's creating us in his own image in eternity past, extending all the way to glorification in eternity future, that is a demonstration that he is for us. What do we say to these things since God is for us? And then he asks, who is against us? Now, to just be blunt and practical, you will, if you're faithful, you will come up against so many challenges to your faith and so many challenges to your Christianity, so many challenges to your values. And this is a good question. Who can stand against you? And it could seem on an earthly level like we lose. When Ridley and Cranmer were tied, bound together, back to back at the stake, they're burnt for their faith under the reign of Bloody Mary. Who can stand against us? Some will say, huh, the English crown. Mary Tudor could stand against you. But this extends, remember, from eternity past where? Into glorification in the future. It's all okay in eternity. God is for us. That's the summary what do we say to these things? We say, since God is for us, it doesn't matter who tries to be against us. We looked at that in great detail last week. We also looked at number two, second question to answer for a Christian's unquestioned assurance. How will God not freely give us all things with Christ? And this is a glorious truth we just dove into a little bit last week and we'll continue to look at in through, through chapter nine, frankly. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he, that is God, God the Father, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This starts with the love that the Father had for the Son. We know that because it's descriptive here of calling Jesus God's own Son, And there's a lot of play going on in here. We looked earlier in the chapter in verses 14 and following, and you see that we too, as believers, are God's sons and daughters, right? We've been, done, we've been um, adopted by God, so by means of adoption, we are now children of God. Here's what's most interesting about this. He spared us from hell, from dying for another, but he didn't spare his own son. This isn't saying, look, I have my own son and everyone else, you're kind of stepchildren. He says, no, you're adopted children, but my own son was so precious to me. Strangely enough, he was so precious, I didn't spare him because that was the only possible payment that could accrue for the cost of our salvation. 
He did not spare his own son, Jesus. He did spare us. He spares us from hell. He didn't spare his own son, the Lord Jesus, but delivered him over for us all. Remember that word delivered is used 25 times in reference to Judas' betrayal. It actually can be translated betrayed. He betrayed him over for us all, but God is not a betrayer. It also means delivered. It's just the same word that Judas used. In the hands of a sinner, it was betrayal. In the hands of God the Father, it was an answer to Isaiah 53. It pleased the Lord to what? Crush him. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was delivering over. He didn't send any angel to rescue the Lord on the cross. He didn't provide any other way. Even when Jesus asked in the garden, if there is any other way, please provide it. And only silence came from heaven. He spared his adopted children, you and me, at the expense of not sparing his own son. So it says he will freely give us all things. What is that? Peter tells us he's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. There's nothing that we need that he has not provided. Now, we can't go with the health and wealth uh, prosperity teachers who would say, see, he freely gives us all things, so whatever you want, if you dream enough, if you have enough faith, you can get it and have it. If you want to be six foot, that's me, then you can keep uh, praying and you'll, you'll keep growing. Or if you want a Ferrari, that's also me, then go look in your garage, and if you pray hard enough, you may open the garage door and it's there. That's not what this is talking about. He doesn't give us everything he wants. He gives us everything we need. Because usually, giving us everything we want would only lead to idolatry. He does what's best for us. He's a good father. He gives good gifts. He gives the best gifts. And he understands exactly what we need. God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. So he will certainly give us all things. Remember what we looked at last time? He will give us all things that work together for our good. Uh, will be conformed to the image of his son, will be glorified one day in heaven. No one will be able to successfully be against us, either supernatural or natural or even uh, physical, phenomenological, circumstantial challenges. No charge will stick against us. Nothing will be able to separate us from Christ's love. In tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, danger, we're more than conquerors. So, death, life, angels, rulers, principalities, Present things, past things, height, depth, nothing in all creation can separate us from Christ's love. That is giving us all things. Well, that's all review, so let's dive in now at number three and pick up two new answers to these questions. Five questions to answer for a Christian's unquestioned assurance. If God is for us, who is against us? How will God not freely give us all things with Christ? Number three. Who will bring a charge against us as God's elect? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Look at verse 33. The question is asked directly. Who? Remember, who or what? It's the Greek word tis, and it has a lot more elasticity than, than, than a what or a who in English. Here, I think he's dealing with specifically people or entities. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Literally, that term God's elect can be translated, those whom God has chosen. Now, as we come to verses 33 and 34, Paul changes the venue of his questioning from a generic epistle where he's asking hypothetical questions to entering us into a courtroom. You can almost hear the theme song to some some, uh, lawyer show firing up, and it drops us right into a court session. Now, a little footnote about this court session He's not talking about a human court where a person, Christian or not, is charged with a crime for which he is not guilty. He is talking about a situation where every man shows up before this judge absolutely guilty, 100% guilty. In a sense, he's speaking as an attorney for the defense. Now picture yourself sitting in the courtroom. You're worthy to be condemned for this crime. It's a capital crime. You're worthy to be condemned to death. But your attorney picks up your file, your case, with hands that have nail scars in them. 
And his presentation to the judge is, it doesn't matter what they've done. The sentence that you would execute against them, I've already done. I've already paid. That's the summary of the first seven chapters of Romans. What's going on here is really defense of what Paul wrote in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5, verse 21, regarding our justification. Remember, this is all about our legal position before God. When Paul talks about a courtroom setting, when Paul talks about the idea of justification or declared righteous, that's legalese. It's, it's legal terminology. In other words, because of our legal standing before God, no charge can be brought against the ones whom God has chosen. The one he chose, he died for. He died for those who would believe. Those who believed are chosen. Those who are chosen are the ones who believe. If that's a little confusing, we'll come back to it in a moment. We're going to get into it way deeper in chapter 9, so just hold your questions. Think about the possibilities. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? The people whom God chose. In Paul's day, who would that have been? And then let's, let's, let's accelerate it into our day. A Roman official. We saw that happen. Agrippa and um, Felix and Festus. Ultimately, the emperor would bring a charge against him. By the way, you know what the charge against Paul ultimately was and the charge for which most early Christians died was? Atheism. They were executed for being atheists because not believing Caesar was God was tantamount to atheism because he was the only and supreme God. And so when the Christians said, no, there's only one true God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Jews who became God in flesh, Jesus Christ, they said, no, no, you don't believe in our God, therefore you're an atheist worthy of death. He says, no Roman official can, come, can bring a charge against me. Or even the emperor. No one can charge a believer with anything that would stand in heaven. Just, just marinate your mind on that for a second. No one could ever charge you of something that's beyond the pale of the reach of the death of Christ. That was happening to believers who were arrested over and over for their faith then and now. We're going to get into this next week, but can I just get a, have a quick aside on this? Why is there this American intuitive thought that somehow we could elect or legislate our way around the persecution that the Bible promises? Remember when Peter was talking to those in 1 Peter who were going to be, be tackled by persecution. He said, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Are you going to be surprised when they take away your tax ex uh, deduction for giving? Are you going to be surprised when they take away our tax exemption as a church? Are you going to be surprised when they say that what I say about sin or homosexuality based on the Bible from this pulpit is called hate speech? Are you going to be surprised if they tote your pastor and leaders off to jail? Are you going to be surprised if they knock on your door and say, do you have a Bible? Then you're coming with me. Is that going to surprise you? Or do you really think that this is the kingdom and it's going to get better and one day we're, we're, just, we're just setting the table for Jesus to return and it'll all be ready when he gets here? That's not the testimony of God's word. We should have every expectation that people will bring charges against us in this life and perhaps the next. That brings the devil in. We know that the devil, based on Job, shows up before God asking about believers on the earth. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if you and I have ever lived such a righteous life that we've ever solicited the enemy of our faith to come before God the Father and say, ha! I wonder if we live that way this attract the attention of the enemy where there's even a charge. If Satan came to God as he did with Job, there would be no charge that could stick because of Christ's death for us. Remember the reason the charges don't stick. It's not because we're not guilty. It's because we are guilty and the charges have already been answered by his death. Something amazing has happened. Colossians 2.14, you remember this? We sing about it sometimes. 
having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. Listen, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He didn't take it out of the way by just dismissing it. He took it out of the way by taking the punishment instead of us for it. In Old Testament terms, Isaiah reached into the gospel with these words. He who vindicates me is near. This is Isaiah 50 verses 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who is against me? Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them. There's nothing that can stand. Now, a quick word about God's elect. This has caused a lot of heartburn for some people. What does it mean when we're talking about God's elect? And it brings us to the issue of election. As we talked about Just in a few verses, this passage brings up every possible controversial issue on God's sovereignty of salvation. In just a few verses, five verses. Foreknowledge, predestination, election. But again, here, God's elect. The ones whom God chose. chose. No footnote, no explanation, just a statement. Why? Please don't miss this. Please, please don't miss this. Every time, every single time, God in his word, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through the pen of these great men of the faith, every time the term election is used or the idea of predestination is used, every single time it's always given to Christians for our assurance. Never for our debate. Never for our anxiety or our consternation. Remember Ephesians 1, don't you? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. There's that promise that he'll provide all things with Christ. Just as he chose us in him when? When we were good guys, bad guys, or or needful guys? No. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention, his kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Everyone who believes has been chosen by God. How do you know you've been chosen? Because you believe. Why would you believe? Because you're chosen. Stop, Rick. That's circular reasoning. Yes, it is. I'm I'm okay with that. Because that's how the Bible draws that circle. The call is to believe. The call in salvation is never, see if you're elect. See if you're chosen. Are you sure you're predestined? The call is to believe. Then once you believe, Peter says, be sure of your choosing by trusting and obeying. It's really simple. If you have been one, and I know there are many in this room, I would stand at the head of the class who have thought deep into the night about, hang on, I I hope, I wish, I pray that I'm chosen, that I'm elect. I, I, I hope so. What if... I'm not. In Canyon Country in California, I was sitting with a college student. Starbucks, we were talking about his lack of assurance. And his conclusion was, well, I've just come to the realization, Rick, that I'm not elect. Really? And how have you come to that realization? Because I just don't know that I am. Really? So what you're saying is that a Christian who has a momentary lack of assurance or even a series of lack of assurances 
must not be saved. He says, well, that's the case with me. I said, wow, man, it must be, you must have some really good binoculars to see into heaven and to know the intentionality of God and all this. He says, well, how do you know if you're chosen? I said, you believe. Unchosen, unelect people don't believe. It's real simple. And those who believe begin to obey. And those who obey enjoy God. And they experience these blessings of God giving us all things in Christ with him. This is such a clear doctrine in God's word. It's going to be further discussed in chapter 9, so just hold on to that. But as I said, please take note, every time the doctrine of election is brought up, it is always, including here, for the encouragement of a believer, for the assurance of a believer. He says, if you're faint-hearted, if you're doubting, if you're foolhardy, if you've sinned, if you feel like you've messed up beyond God's grace, rest assured, you've been chosen. Repent. Do better today. Do better tomorrow. It's for our assurance, not for our anxiety. Rest and rejoice in the fact of God's choosing you. And can I ask you to do what's pretty easy, and that's just to be amazed that God would choose you. I, I remember where I was on the 210 freeway in Los Angeles when I was overwhelmed thinking and meditating on this just thinking, God chose me. I know me. I would have never chosen me. I have so many issues. I have so many doubts, so many insecurities, so many sins, so many problems. I, would, there are so, I, I remember thinking there are so many more personality all-stars that God could have chosen. Why me? Why I think we all should come to that, that point where we just say, I can't believe, I can't believe he chose me. When you get there, that's the point of worship. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The devil can't, a demon can't, a person can't. Can I say this? Even God the Father won't because God the Son has been crushed for us to satisfy him. Let's look at this fourth question, and this is so encouraging. This, this, is, this, is, this should be one of your favorite passages in all the Bible. Who can condemn us? Who can condemn us? Who can not only bring a charge against us, but who can actually execute our justice in the end and say, you're done before God, you're done before this world, you're finished Pick it up in the middle of 33. God is the one who makes righteous, who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? The end of verse 33 and the beginning of 34 are really a summary of chapters 3 through 8. Who is the one who justifies God? If God justifies, makes righteous, who is the one who condemns? And remember, this making righteous is not based on us being better, trying harder. It's based on his declaration that we are covered by the righteousness of Christ in such a way that he puts that on our account. We say this over and over. Let me say it again. It's not infusion. That's the Catholic doctrine of God, infusing righteousness into a believer. Therefore, because it's infused, you have to work it out and, and, and try your best to be better and, and stronger and, and faster spiritually. And finally, hopefully, you'll make it. And if you don't, you have purgatory to work it out. That's infusion. That, we don't believe in infusion. We believe in imputation. He looks at our account and stamps it not guilty. He looks at our account and says, full and covered by the righteousness, perfection of my own son. He justifies. Because of that, who can condemn us? Does this remind you of chapter 8, verse 1? Therefore... And this is another verse for assurance after you're wrestling with your, your sin and you're wondering, am I really saved? He says, therefore, there is now no, what's the word? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ can't be condemned. He already was. How could we be condemned? Because we're in him. That's the point. Who is the one who condemns? He circles back now. 
to something that is epic biblically. Who will condemn us? Who can condemn us? Obviously, no one. But now look at the little rider clause he has on this. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? You ever known someone who, maybe you are this person, I tend to be this, this, kind, this way, who just speaks in run-on sentences? You just wonder, is there ever a punctuation point? There's just always a qualification after qualification after qualification. I love what Paul does here. It's like he says something, he says, yeah, yeah, but let me clarify. Yeah, but let me clarify that. First of all, Christ Jesus is he who died. He's been all over that since chapter one. He is the one who died for the sins of those who would believe. He's, he's the one who died for our sins. Now, I love all of the cross-centered theology, the cross-centered songs that we're singing. I love this emphasis on the cross. But it's incomplete. Paul can't even say, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, I can't stop there. Who was raised. Could I share with you just a serious I hope theological pet peeve I have about crucifixes that have Jesus still on the cross. That's not the whole message. We believe in a cross that's empty and a tomb that's empty, don't we? Rather, who was raised? He adds that level of accent. It's the resurrection. Paul can't speak of the cross without speaking of the resurrection. Instead of talking about the instrument of execution here, he doesn't even say the cross. He just says that he died. He merely speaks of Christ's death. He moves on. This is so important. Moving toward the fact that Jesus didn't stay dead. It's important that he says he was dead so that we know he didn't stay that way. He was raised. He was raised. Can we try it? Jesus Christ is risen. He's risen indeed, isn't he? I've come to a steadfast conviction that the resurrection of Jesus is the glue that holds the entire gospel and New Testament together. Paul told the Corinthians that without the resurrection, you have no gospel. He says in chapter 15, verse 12, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead. Notice, he says the preaching of Christ is to preach that he's raised from the dead, not just that he died for sins, but that he rose from the grave. If Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead. How do some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's worthless. And your faith is in vain also. Did you hear that? If there's no resurrection, you have no Christianity. You believe in a, in a sad situation about a guy who died in the first century. Verse 15 says, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we've testified against God, that he raised Christ from the dead. If you'll go back to when he stood before Jerusalem Council, when he stood before Felix, when he stood before Festus, when he stood before Agrippa, every single time, you know what he was put on trial for? Preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead. That was what was so incredulous to these people. For the dead are not raised, Paul tells, tells the Corinthians, not even Christ has been raised. Then he says this, verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Now, don't call me a heretic. I'm just quoting Paul. Paul is saying that it wasn't the cross alone that accomplished redemption for our sins. It was the cross 
and the resurrection. In Romans 4, he says, the resurrection caused our justification. The implications of the resurrection are staggering. If you believe that he was raised and will raise you one day, who or what can stand against you? Is there anything that can beat the doctrine of the resurrection? Now think about this. If Jesus is alive, since Jesus is alive, he's somewhere doing something. Right? Is that fair to say? If he's alive, he's somewhere doing something in a corporeal body. I don't know if it's to Saturn, three light years to the right, and go in eternity. I don't know where it is, but he's somewhere doing something. This text informs us where he is and what he's doing. He's alive. And because he's alive, only because he's alive, only because of the resurrection, he sits at the right hand of God the Father, alive and well. And this text informs us that his attention, this is incredible. I mean, do you have your spiritual seatbelt on? His attention is on you if you believe. He is praying, interceding for you. That's Let's, let's be literal about this. He's sitting, here's God the Father on his eternal throne. He's sitting at the right hand, I think metaphorically and literally, physically. And he's talking to the Father about you as a believer. As if you were the only person alive. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrews says. Hebrews 7, this is such a good contrast. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented from, uh, by death from continuing. It's just a funny verse. There were a lot of priests in the, in the past. The reason is they all died. You didn't have one who like lasted forever. One would die, you'd have to get another one. He would die, you'd have to get another one. There were former priests. They were prevented by death from continuing. What a strange way to say that. They were prevented by death from continuing. It's like I was reading a blog one time about uh, shaving and it said, uh, due to the unmovable nature of the nose, shaving that part of your face can be difficult. Oh, that's a genius way to say that. The unmovable nature of your nose. They were prevented from death by continuing. They would have continued, but they died. But Jesus, (laughs) but Jesus, they died. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever holds his priesthood permanently. Nobody's waiting on him to die. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. There it is again. He lives to make intercession for those who draw near to him. It's a staggering thought. That Jesus thinks about you, knows about you, talks to the Father about you. Now, the question is, what is he talking about? Is he just saying, did you see that? Of course God the Father saw that. He's omniscient and omnipresent. I don't think he's saying, did you see that? If you go back to John 17, and we don't have time to do this this morning, the whole chapter is, is about Jesus' final earthly prayer, and it's for his disciples, and it's for his reunification with God and, uh, after the resurrection. And at the end of that chapter, it's about the future believers. It's about us. By the way, he prays for the disciples for their holiness, for their unity, for their continued faith, for their endurance under persecution, which I think all apply to how he would pray for us today. We still need those prayers. But listen to how Jesus prayed for us back then, because I think how he prayed for us then is indicative of how he prays for us now. John 17, 20 says, I do not ask, remember Jesus talking to the Father, we're, we're eavesdropping on an inner Trinitarian conversation. 
I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the disciples who are with him there, those 11 apostles, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's you. That's the legacy of the gospel that's passed down through the ages. That they may all be one. So he prays for our unity. You know he's praying? He's praying about your grudges. He's praying about your gossip about other believers. He's praying about your your ability to be strong in convictions and in teaching and in discipling. He's praying that Mission Road Bible Church is unified. They all be one. Then he gives this illustration, even as you, the Father, are in me, I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, the world will know that we are authentic when we love each other, when we're unified. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. The glory, if you go back to chapter 13, was given to him in the cross. He says, now was the Son of Man glorified. He was entering into his passion, into the cross. That's what he wants in us. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Listen to this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so so they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. You know what that is? That's God the Son praying to God the Father for yours and my death. When will we see his glory as it is? Only in our resurrection. He says, oh, Father, I pray that they're they one day get here with me. We try so hard to stiff arm death our whole life, and I don't have a death wish. Hebrews, though, says that those who Christ has saved have been rescued, saved from the fear of death. He goes on, O righteous Father, although the world has known not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In other words, take my love to the world. He's praying for your evangelism. He's praying for your unity and your evangelism. He's praying for the, 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 the classic philosophy of ministry. He's praying for your relationship with the Father and Him. He's pray, praying for your relationship with believers and He's praying for your relationship with unbelievers. The fact that Jesus prays for you is also added to the fact that in verse 27 we found out that the Holy Spirit is also praying for us. And the fact that they're talking to the Father about this, do you understand that the Trinity has conferences about you that never end? God in the mysterious inner workings of his being is concerned for thinking about, talking about, Noticing you. He's communicating this precious fact to encourage us and comfort us and to assure us. Remember, when we look at the next passage that all these things that could come against us, we just sang about them. He wants us to know that he's aware and that there's communication within a trinity about that. It's okay. This should also sober us and warn us. It's almost as if every time we sin, the son turns to the father and could say, I died for that. That's covered. Doesn't deserve your wrath. I've already paid for that. Boy, I want to make those kind of interactions within the Trinity less and less, don't you? How do you think the omniscient Jesus prays for us when we're tempted to sin or bitter or angry or when we're persecuted or in trouble or in difficulty? He prays for us that our worship is secure, that our unity is not only pursued but is supported within the believing community. And he also prays that we will be lights 
to the world. Those are the marching orders in his upper room discourse. Those are the bullet points of his prayer for us. Now, just step back. Do you realize that since you've woken up this morning to this moment, Spirit of God and the Son of God have spoken to God the Father about you as a son or daughter of God. That gives you chills. The question is, do you believe that? And if you believe that, does that have any implications for how you think, how you feel, how you respond? That's Paul's practical application. He wants it to matter that we're the focus of Trinitarian conversation. No one can condemn us. In fact, Jesus is alive and at the right hand of God, not only standing for our fact, the fact that we're not condemned, but he's interceding for us. Amazing. Praying for us. My question is, does that amaze you? And if you don't know Christ, are you jealous of that? You ought to be. You ought to be afraid of that. Do you have the assurance that the one who died for the forgiveness of your sin is actually interceding to the Father on your behalf. Please be amazed by that. And if you're not, please run to that reality. Let's pray. What a treasure, what a privilege that you care about us so much that you talk within the mystery of the Godhead and intercede for us. Lord Jesus, we're grateful. Forgive us for so many times that your cross has been referenced, the resurrection has been accented because of our sin, and yet we thank you for that covering that we have in, in the same breath. Sanctify us, make us pure in our worship, faithful in our unity to the body of Christ, and aggressive in telling people about the salvation that we enjoy. You've asked these questions through the Apostle Paul. Provide the answers through your Holy Spirit to give us assurance and peace and comfort. In Jesus' name, amen.